Chapter 18 The Wind Makes Dust The wind makes dust because it intends to blow, taking away our footprints. Specimens of Bushman Folklore W. H. I. Bleak and L. C. Lloyd Collectors L. C. Lloyd Editor 1911 Every time a savage tracks his game, he employs a minuteness of observation and an accuracy of inductive and deductive reasoning which, applied to other matters, would assure some reputation as a man of science. The intellectual labor of a good hunter or warrior considerably exceeds that of an ordinary Englishman. Thomas H. Huxley Collected Essays, Volume 2 Darwiniana Essays, London Macmillan, 1907 Pages 175 and 176 From Mr. Darwin's Critics, 1871 Why should so many people find science hard to learn and hard to teach? I've tried to suggest some of the reasons. Its precision, its counterintuitive and disquieting aspects, its prospects of misuse, its independence of authority, and so on. But is there something deeper? Alan Cromer is a physics professor at Northeastern University in Boston, who was surprised to find so many students unable to grasp the most elementary concepts in his physics class. In Uncommon Sense, The Heretical Nature of Science, 1993, Cromer proposes that science is difficult because it's new. We, a species that's a few hundred thousand years old, discovered the method of science only a few centuries ago, he says. Like writing, which is only a few millennia old, we haven't got the hang of it yet, or at least not without very serious and attentive study. Except for an unlikely concatenation of historical events, he suggests we would never have invented science. This hostility to science, in the face of its obvious triumphs and benefits, is evidence that it is something outside the mainstream of human development, perhaps a fluke. Chinese civilization invented movable type, gunpowder, the rocket, the magnetic compass, the seismograph, and systematic observations and chronicles of the heavens. Indian mathematicians invented the zero, the key to comfortable arithmetic, and therefore to quantitative science. Aztec civilization developed a far better calendar than that of the European civilization that inundated and destroyed it. They were better able, and for longer periods into the future, to predict where the planets would be. But none of these civilizations, Cromer argues, had developed the skeptical, inquiring, experimental method of science. All of that came out of ancient Greece. The development of objective thinking by the Greeks appears to have required a number of specific cultural factors. First was the assembly, where men first learned to persuade one another by means of rational debate, 
Second was a maritime economy that prevented isolation and parochialism. Third was the existence of a widespread Greek-speaking world around which travelers and scholars could wander. Fourth was the existence of an independent merchant class that could hire its own teachers. Fifth was the Iliad and the Odyssey, literary masterpieces that are themselves the epitome of liberal, rational thinking. Sixth was a literary religion not dominated by priests. And seventh was the persistence of these factors for one thousand years. That all these factors came together in one great civilization is quite fortuitous. It didn't happen twice. I'm sympathetic to part of this thesis. The ancient Ionians were the first we know of to argue systematically that laws and forces of nature, rather than gods, are responsible for the order and even the existence of the world. As Lucretius summarized their views, Nature, free at once, and rid of her haughty lords, is seen to do all things spontaneously of herself, without the meddling of the gods. Except for the first week of introductory philosophy courses, though, the names and notions of the early Ionians are almost never mentioned in our society. Those who dismiss the gods tend to be forgotten. We are not anxious to preserve the memory of such skeptics, much less their ideas. Heroes who try to explain the world in terms of matter and energy may have arisen many times in many cultures, only to be obliterated by the priests and philosophers in charge of the conventional wisdom, as the Ionian approach was almost wholly lost after the time of Plato and Aristotle. With many cultures and many experiments of this sort, it may be that only on rare occasions does the idea take root. Plants and animals were domesticated, and civilization began only ten or twelve thousand years ago. The Ionian experiment is two thousand five hundred years old. It was almost entirely expunged. We can see steps towards science in ancient China, India, and elsewhere, even though faltering and incomplete and bearing less fruit. But suppose the Ionians had never existed, and Greek science and mathematics never flourished. Is it possible that never again in the history of the human species would science have emerged? Or, given many cultures and many alternative historical schemes, isn't it likely that the right combination of factors would come into play somewhere else, sooner or later? In the islands of Indonesia, say? or in the Caribbean, on the outskirts of a Mesoamerican civilization untouched by conquistadors, or in Norse colonies on the shores of the Black Sea. The impediment to scientific thinking is not, I think, the difficulty of the subject. Complex intellectual feats have been mainstays even of oppressed cultures. Shamans, Magicians and theologians are highly skilled in their intricate and arcane arts. No, the impediment is political and hierarchical. 
in those cultures lacking unfamiliar challenges, external or internal, where fundamental changes are needed, novel ideas need not be encouraged. Indeed, heresies can be declared dangerous, thinking can be rigidified, and sanctions against impermissible ideas can be enforced, all without much harm. But under varied and changing environmental or biological or political circumstances, simply copying the old ways no longer works. Then a premium awaits those who, instead of blandly following tradition or trying to foist their preferences onto the physical or social universe, are open to what the universe teaches. Each society must decide where, in the continuum between openness and rigidity, safety lies. Greek mathematics was a brilliant step forward. Greek science, on the other hand, its first steps rudimentary and often uninformed by experiment, was riddled with error. Despite the fact that we cannot see in pitch darkness, they believed that vision depends on a kind of radar that emanates from the eye bounces off what we're seeing and returns to the eye. Nevertheless, they made substantial progress in optics. Despite the obvious resemblance of children to their mothers, they believed that heredity was carried by semen alone, the woman a mere passive receptacle. They believed that the horizontal motion of a thrown rock somehow lifts it up so that it takes longer to reach the ground than a rock dropped from the same height at the same moment. Enamored of simple geometry, they believed the circle to be perfect. Despite the man in the moon and sunspots, occasionally visible to the naked eye at sunset, they held the heavens also to be perfect. Therefore, planetary orbits had to be circular. Being freed from superstition, isn't enough for science to grow. One must also have the idea of interrogating nature, of doing experiments. There were some brilliant examples. Eratosthenes' measurement of the Earth's diameter, say, or Empedocles' clepsydra experiment demonstrating the material nature of air. But in a society in which manual labor is demeaned and thought fit only for slaves, as in the classical Greco-Roman world, the experimental method does not thrive. Science requires us to be freed of gross superstition and gross injustice both. Often, superstition and injustice are imposed by the same ecclesiastical and secular authorities, working hand in glove. It's no surprise that political revolutions, skepticism about religion, and the rise of science might go together. Liberation from superstition is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition for science. At the same time, it is undeniable that central figures in the transition from medieval superstition to modern science were profoundly influenced by the idea of one supreme god who created the universe and established not only commandments that humans must live by, but laws that nature itself must abide by. The 17th-century German astronomer Johannes Kepler, without whom Newtonian physics might not have come to be, 
described his pursuit of science as a wish to know the mind of God. In our own time, leading scientists, including Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking, have described their quest in nearly identical terms. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead and the historian of Chinese technology, Joseph Needham, have also suggested that what was lacking in the development of science in non-Western cultures was monotheism. And yet, I think there is strong contrary evidence to this whole thesis, calling out to us from across the millennia. The small hunting party follows the trail of hoofprints and other spoor. They pause for a moment by a stand of trees. Squatting on their heels, they examine the evidence more carefully. The trail they have been following has been crossed by another. Quickly, they agree on which animals are responsible, how many of them, what ages and sexes, whether any are injured, how fast they are traveling, how long ago they passed, whether any other hunters are in pursuit, whether the party can overtake the game, and if so, how long it will take. The decision made, they flick their hands over the trail they will follow, make a quiet sound between their teeth like the wind, and off they lope. Despite their bows and poison arrows, they continue at championship marathon racing form for hours. Almost always, they've read the message in the ground correctly. The wildebeests, or elands, or okapis, are where they thought, in the numbers and condition they estimated. The hunt is successful. Meat is carried back to the temporary camp. Everyone feasts. This more or less typical hunting vignette comes from the Kangsan people of the Kalahari Desert, in the republics of Botswana and Namibia, who are now, tragically, on the verge of extinction. But for decades, they and their way of life were studied by anthropologists. The Kangsan may be typical of the hunter-gatherer mode of existence in which we humans spent most of our time, until 10,000 years ago, when plants and animals were domesticated, and the human condition began to change, perhaps forever. They were trackers of such legendary prowess that they were enlisted by the apartheid South African army to hunt down human prey in the wars against the frontline states. This encounter with the white South African military in several different ways accelerated the destruction of the Kung San way of life that had, in any case, been deteriorating bit by bit over the centuries from every contact with European civilization. How did they do it? How could they tell so much from a glance? Saying they're keen observers explains nothing. What actually did they do? According to anthropologist Richard Lee, they scrutinized the shape of the depressions. The footprints of a fast-moving animal display a more elongated symmetry. A slightly lame animal favors the afflicted foot, puts less weight on it, and leaves a fainter imprint. A heavier animal leaves a deeper and broader hollow. The correlation functions are in the heads of the hunters. 
In the course of the day, the footprints erode a little. The walls of the depression tend to crumble. Wind-blown sand accumulates on the floor of the hollow. Perhaps bits of leaf, twigs, or grass are blown into it. The longer you wait, the more erosion there is. This method is essentially identical to what planetary astronomers use in analyzing craters left by impacting worldlets. Other things being equal, the shallower the crater, the older it is. Craters with slumped walls, with modest depth-to-diameter ratios, with fine particles accumulated in their interiors, tend to be more ancient, because they had to be around long enough for these erosive processes to come into play. The sources of degradation may differ from world to world, or desert to desert, or epoch to epoch. But if you know what they are, you can determine a great deal from how crisp or blurred the crater is. If insect or other animal tracks are superposed on the hoofprints, this also argues against their freshness. The subsurface moisture content of the soil and the rate at which it dries out after being exposed by a hoof determine how crumbly the crater walls are. All these matters are closely studied by the Kung. The galloping herd hates the hot sun. The animals will use whatever shade they can find. They will alter course to take brief advantage of the shade from a stand of trees. But where the shadow is depends on the time of day, because the sun is moving across the sky. In the morning, as the sun is rising in the east, shadows are cast west of the trees. Later in the afternoon, as the sun is setting toward the west, shadows are cast to the east. From the swerve of the tracks, it's possible to tell how long ago the animals passed. This calculation will be different in different seasons of the year. So the hunters must carry in their heads a kind of astronomical calendar predicting the apparent solar motion. To me, all of these formidable forensic tracking skills are science in action. Not only are hunter-gatherers expert in the tracks of other animals, they also know human tracks very well. Every member of the band is recognizable by his or her footprints. They are as familiar as their faces. Lorenz van der Post recounts. Many miles from home and separated from the rest, Inshu and I, on the track of a wounded buck, suddenly found another set of prints and spore joining our own. He gave a deep grunt of satisfaction and said it was Bashao's footmarks, made not many minutes before. He declared Bashao was running fast, and that we would soon see him and the animal. We topped the dune in front of us, and there was Bashao, already skinning the animal. Or Richard Lee, also among the Kung San, relates how, when briefly examining some tracks, a hunter commented, Oh, look! Tunu is here with his brother-in-law, but where is his son? Is this really science? Does every tracker in the course of his training sit on his haunches for hours, 
following the slow degradation of an eland hoofprint? When the anthropologist asks this question, the answer given is that hunters have always used such methods. They observed their fathers and other accomplished hunters during their apprenticeships. They learned by imitation. The general principles were passed down from generation to generation. The local variations, wind speed, soil moisture, are updated as needed in each generation, or seasonally, or day by day. But modern scientists do just the same. Every time we try to judge the age of a crater on the moon, or mercury, or triton, by its degree of erosion, we do not perform the calculation from scratch. We dust off a certain scientific paper and read the tried and true numbers that have been set down perhaps as much as a generation earlier. Physicists do not derive Maxwell's equations or quantum mechanics from scratch. They try to understand the principles and the mathematics. They observe its utility. They note how nature follows these rules. And they take these sciences to heart, making them their own. Yet someone had to figure out all these tracking protocols for the first time. Perhaps some Paleolithic genius, or more likely a succession of geniuses in widely separated times and places. There is no hint in the Kung tracking protocols of magical methods, examining the stars the night before, or the entrails of an animal, or casting dice, or interpreting dreams or conjuring demons, or any of the myriad other spurious claims to knowledge that humans have intermittently entertained. Here there's a specific, well-defined question. Which way did the prey go, and what are its characteristics? You need a precise answer that magic and divination simply do not provide, or at least not often enough to stave off starvation. Instead, hunter-gatherers, who are not very superstitious in their everyday life, except during trance dances around the fire and under the influence of mild euphorians, are practical, workaday, motivated, social, and often very cheerful. They employ skills, winnowed from past successes and failures. Scientific thinking has almost certainly been with us from the beginning. You can even see it in chimpanzees when tracking on patrol of the frontiers of their territory, or when preparing a reed to insert into the termite mound to extract a modest but much-needed source of protein. The development of tracking skills delivers a powerful evolutionary selective advantage. Those groups, unable to figure it out, get less protein and leave fewer offspring. Those with a scientific bent, those able to patiently observe, those with a penchant for figuring out, acquire more food, especially more protein, and live in more varied habitats. They and their hereditary lines prosper. The same is true, for instance, of Polynesian seafaring skills. A scientific bent brings tangible rewards. The other principal food-garnering activity of pre-agrarian societies is foraging. To forage, you must know the properties of many plants. 
and you must certainly be able to distinguish one from another. Botanists and anthropologists have repeatedly found that all over the world, hunter-gatherer peoples have distinguished the various plant species with the precision of Western taxonomists. They have mentally mapped their territory with the finesse of cartographers. Again, all this is a precondition for survival. So the claim that just as children are not developmentally ready for certain concepts in mathematics or logic, so primitive peoples are not intellectually able to grasp science and technology, is nonsense. This vestige of colonialism and racism is belied by the everyday activities of people living with no fixed abode, and almost no possessions, the few remaining hunter-gatherers the custodians of our deep past. Of Cromer's criteria for objective thinking, we can certainly find in hunter-gatherer peoples vigorous and substantive debate, direct participatory democracy, wide-ranging travel, no priests, and the persistence of these factors not for 1,000, but for 300,000 years or more. By his criteria, Hunter-gatherers ought to have science. I think they do, or did. What Ionia and ancient Greece provided is not so much inventions or technology or engineering, but the idea of systematic inquiry, the notion that laws of nature, rather than capricious gods, govern the world. Water, air, earth, and fire all had their turn as candidate explanations of the nature and origin of the world. Each such explanation, identified with a different pre-Socratic philosopher, was deeply flawed in its details. But the mode of explanation, an alternative to divine intervention, was productive and new. Likewise, in the history of ancient Greece, we can see nearly all significant events driven by the caprice of the gods in Homer, only a few events in Herodotus, and essentially none at all in Thucydides. In a few hundred years, history passed from god-driven to human-driven. Something akin to laws of nature was once glimpsed in a determinedly polytheistic society, in which some scholars toyed with a form of atheism. This approach of the pre-Socratics was, beginning in about the 4th century BC, quenched by Plato, Aristotle, and then Christian theologians. If the scheme of historical causality had been different, if the brilliant guesses of the atomists on the nature of matter, the plurality of worlds, the vastness of space and time had been treasured and built upon, if the innovative technology of Archimedes had been taught and emulated, if the notion of invariable laws of nature that humans must seek out and understand had been widely propagated, I wonder what kind of world we would live in now. I don't think science is hard to teach because humans aren't ready for it, or because it arose only through a fluke, or because, by and large, we don't have the brain power to grapple with it. Instead, 
the enormous zest for science that I see in first graders and the lesson from the remnant hunter-gatherers both speak eloquently. A proclivity for science is embedded deeply within us, in all times, places, and cultures. It has been the means for our survival. It is our birthright. When, through indifference, inattention, incompetence, or fear of skepticism, we discourage children from science, we are disenfranchising them, taking from them the tools needed to manage their future. Chapter 19. No Such Thing as a Dumb Question So we keep asking, over and over, until a handful of earth stops our mouths. But is that an answer? Heinrich Heine, Lazarus, 1854 In East Africa, in the records of the rocks, dating back to about two million years ago, you can find a sequence of worked tools that our ancestors designed and executed. Their lives depended on making and using these tools. This was, of course, early Stone Age technology. Over time, specially fashioned stones were used for stabbing, chipping, flaking, cutting, carving. Although there are many ways of making stone tools, what is remarkable is that in a given site, for enormous periods of time, the tools were made in the same way, which means that there must have been educational institutions hundreds of thousands of years ago, even if it was mainly an apprenticeship system. While it's easy to exaggerate the similarities, it's also easy to imagine the equivalent of professors and students in loincloths, laboratory courses, examinations, failing grades, graduation ceremonies, and postgraduate education. When the training is unchanged for immense periods of time, traditions are passed on intact to the next generation. But when what needs to be learned changes quickly, especially in the course of a single generation, it becomes much harder to know what to teach and how to teach it. Then, students complain about relevance, respect for their elders diminishes. Teachers despair at how educational standards have deteriorated, and how lackadaisical students have become. In a world in transition, students and teachers both need to teach themselves one essential skill, learning how to learn. Except for children, who don't know enough not to ask the important questions, few of us spend much time wondering why nature is the way it is, where the cosmos came from, or whether it was always here. If time will one day flow backward and effects precede causes, or whether there are ultimate limits to what humans can know. There are even children, and I have met some of them, who want to know what a black hole looks like, what is the smallest piece of matter, why we remember the past and not the future, and why there is a universe. Every now and then, I'm lucky enough to teach a kindergarten or first grade class. Many of these children are natural-born scientists, although heavy on the wonder side and light on skepticism. They're curious, intellectually vigorous. Provocative and insightful questions bubble out of them. 
they exhibit enormous enthusiasm. I'm asked follow-up questions. They've never heard of the notion of a dumb question. But when I talk to high school seniors, I find something different. They memorize facts. By and large, though, the joy of discovery, the life behind those facts, has gone out of them. They've lost much of the wonder and gained very little skepticism. They're worried about asking dumb questions. They're willing to accept inadequate answers. They don't pose follow-up questions. The room is awash with sidelong glances to judge, second by second, the approval of their peers. They come to class with their questions written out on pieces of paper, which they surreptitiously examine, waiting their turn and oblivious of whatever discussion their peers are at this moment engaged in. Something has happened between first and twelfth grade, and it's not just puberty. I'd guess that it's partly peer pressure not to excel, except in sports, partly that the society teaches short-term gratification, partly the impression that science or mathematics won't buy you a sports car, partly that so little is expected of students, and partly that there are few rewards or role models for intelligent discussion of science and technology, or even for learning for its own sake. Those few who remain interested are vilified as nerds or geeks or grinds. But there's something else. I find many adults are put off when young children pose scientific questions. Why is the moon round? The children ask. Why is grass green? What is a dream? How deep can you dig a hole? When is the world's birthday? Why do we have toes? Too many teachers and parents answer with irritation or ridicule or quickly move on to something else. What did you expect the moon to be? Square? Children soon recognize that somehow this kind of question annoys the grown-ups. A few more experiences like it, and another child has been lost to science. Why adults should pretend to omniscience before six-year-olds, I can't for the life of me understand. What's wrong with admitting that we don't know something? Is our self-esteem so fragile? What's more, many of these questions go to deep issues in science, a few of which are not yet fully resolved. Why the moon is round has to do with the fact that gravity is a central force pulling towards the middle of any world, and with how strong rocks are. Grass is green, because of the pigment chlorophyll, of course. We've all had that drummed into us by high school. But why do plants have chlorophyll? It seems foolish, since the sun puts out its peak energy in the yellow and green part of the spectrum. Why should plants all over the world reject sunlight in its most abundant wavelengths? Maybe it's a frozen accident from the ancient history of life on Earth. But there's something we still don't understand about why grass is green. There are many better responses than making the child feel that asking deep questions constitutes a social blunder. If we have an idea of the answer, we can try to explain. Even an incomplete attempt constitutes a reassurance and encouragement. If we have no idea of the answer, we can go to the encyclopedia. If we don't have an encyclopedia, 
we can take the child to the library. Or we might say, I don't know the answer, maybe no one knows, maybe when you grow up, you'll be the first person to find out. There are naive questions, tedious questions, ill-phrased questions, questions put after inadequate self-criticism. But every question is a cry to understand the world. There is no such thing as a dumb question. Bright, curious children are a national and world resource. They need to be cared for, cherished, and encouraged. But mere encouragement isn't enough. We must also give them the essential tools to think with. It's official, reads one newspaper headline. We stink in science. In tests of average 17-year-olds in many world regions, the U.S. ranked dead last in algebra. On identical tests, the U.S. kids averaged 43%, and their Japanese counterparts, 78%. In my book, 78% is pretty good. It corresponds to a C+, or maybe even a B-. 43% is an F. In a chemistry test, students in only two of the 13 nations did worse than the U.S. Britain, Singapore, and Hong Kong were so high they were almost off-scale, and 25% of Canadian 18-year-olds knew just as much chemistry as a select 1% of American high school seniors in their second chemistry course, and most of them in advanced placement programs. The best of 20 fifth-grade classrooms in Minneapolis was outpaced by every one of 20 classrooms in Sendai, Japan, and 19 out of 20 in Taipei, Taiwan. South Korean students were far ahead of American students in all aspects of mathematics and science, and 13-year-olds in British Columbia, in Western Canada, outpaced their U.S. counterparts across the board. In some areas, they did better than the Koreans. Of the U.S. kids, 22% say they dislike school. Only 8% of the Koreans do. Yet two-thirds of the Americans, but only a quarter of the Koreans, say they are good at mathematics. Such dismal trends for average students in the United States are occasionally offset by the performance of outstanding students. In 1994, American students at the International Mathematical Olympiad in Hong Kong achieved an unprecedented perfect score, defeating 360 other students from 68 nations in algebra, geometry, and number theory. One of them, 17-year-old Jeremy Bem, commented, Math problems are logic puzzles. There's no routine. It's all very creative and artistic. But here I'm concerned not with producing a new generation of first-rate scientists and mathematicians, but a scientifically literate public. 63% of American adults are unaware that the last dinosaur died before the first human arose. 75% do not know that antibiotics kill bacteria but not viruses. 57% do not know that electrons are smaller than atoms. Polls show that something like half of American adults do not know that the Earth goes around the sun and takes a year to do it. 
I can find in my undergraduate classes at Cornell University bright students who do not know that the stars rise and set at night, or even that the sun is a star. Because of science fiction, the educational system, NASA, and the role that science plays in society, Americans have much more exposure to the Copernican insight than does the average human. A 1993 poll by the China Association of Science and Technology shows that, as in America, no more than half the people in China know that the Earth revolves around the sun once a year. It may very well be then that more than four and a half centuries after Copernicus, most people on Earth still think, in their heart of hearts, that our planet sits immobile at the center of the universe, and that we are profoundly special. These are typical questions in scientific literacy. The results are appalling, but what do they measure? The memorization of authoritative pronouncements. What they should be asking is how we know that antibiotics discriminate between microbes, that electrons are smaller than atoms, that the sun is a star which the Earth orbits once a year. Such questions are a much truer measure of public understanding of science, and the results of such tests would doubtless be more disheartening still. If you accept the literal truth of every word in the Bible, then the Earth must be flat. The same is true for the Quran. Pronouncing the Earth round then means you're an atheist. In 1993, the supreme religious authority of Saudi Arabia. Sheikh Abdul Aziz ibn Baz issued an edict or fatwa declaring that the world is flat. Anyone of the round persuasion does not believe in God and should be punished. Among many ironies, the lucid evidence that the Earth is a sphere, accumulated by the second-century Greco-Egyptian astronomer Claudius Ptolemaeus, was transmitted to the West by astronomers who were Muslim and Arab. In the ninth century, they named Ptolemy's book, in which the sphericity of the Earth is demonstrated, the Almagest, the greatest. I meet many people offended by evolution, who passionately prefer to be the personal handicraft of God than to arise by blind physical and chemical forces over eons from slime. They also tend to be less than assiduous in exposing themselves to the evidence. Evidence. Has little to do with it. What they wish to be true, they believe is true. Only nine percent of Americans accept the central finding of modern biology that human beings and all the other species have slowly evolved by natural processes from a succession of more ancient beings with no divine intervention needed along the way. When asked merely if they accept evolution. Forty-five percent of Americans say yes. The figure is seventy percent in China. When the movie Jurassic Park was shown in Israel, it was condemned by some Orthodox rabbis because it accepted evolution, and because it taught that dinosaurs lived a hundred million years ago. When, as is plainly stated at every Rosh Hashanah and every Jewish wedding ceremony, the universe is less than six thousand years old. The clearest evidence of our evolution can be found in our genes, but evolution is still being fought, ironically, by those whose own DNA proclaims it.
in the schools, in the courts, in textbook publishing houses, and on the question of just how much pain we can inflict on other animals without crossing some ethical threshold. During the Great Depression, teachers enjoyed job security, good salaries, respectability. Teaching was an admired profession, partly because learning was widely recognized as the road out of poverty. Little of that is true today, and so science and other teaching is too often incompetently and uninspiringly done. Its practitioners, astonishingly, have little or no training in their subjects, impatient with the method, and in a hurry to get to the findings of science, and sometimes themselves unable to distinguish science from pseudoscience. Those who do have the training often get higher-paying jobs elsewhere. Children need hands-on experience with the experimental method rather than just reading about science in a book. We can be told about oxidation of wax as the explanation of the candle flame, but we have a much more vivid sense of what's going on if we witness the candle burning briefly in a bell jar until the carbon dioxide produced by the burning surrounds the wick, blocks access to oxygen, and the flame flickers and dies. We can be taught about mitochondria in cells, how they mediate the oxidation of food, like the flame burning the wax. But it's another thing altogether to see them under the microscope. We may be told that oxygen is necessary for the life of some organisms and not others. But we begin to really understand when we test the proposition in a bell jar fully depleted of oxygen. What does oxygen do for us? Why do we die without it? Where does the oxygen in the air come from? How secure is the supply? Experiment and the scientific method can be taught in many matters other than science. Daniel Kunitz is a friend of mine from college. He's spent his life as an innovative junior and senior high school social sciences teacher. Want the students to understand the Constitution of the United States? You could have them read it, article by article, and then discuss it in class. But sadly, this will put most of them to sleep. Or you could try the Kunitz method. You forbid the students to read the Constitution. Instead, you assign them, two for each state, to attend a constitutional convention. You brief each of the thirteen teams in detail on the particular interests of their state and region. The South Carolina delegation, say, would be told of the primacy of cotton, the necessity and morality of the slave trade, the danger posed by the industrial North, and so on. The thirteen delegations assemble, and with a little faculty guidance, but mainly on their own, over some weeks write a constitution. Then they read the real constitution. The students have reserved war-making powers to the president. The delegates of 1787 assign them to Congress. Why? The students have freed the slaves. The original constitutional convention did not. Why? This takes more preparation by the teachers and more work by the students. But the experience is unforgettable. It's hard not to think that the nations of the earth would be in better shape if every citizen went through a comparable experience.
We need more money for teachers' training and salaries, and for laboratories. But all across America, school bond issues are regularly voted down. No one suggests that property taxes be used to provide for the military budget, or for agriculture subsidies, or for cleaning up toxic wastes. Why just education? Why not support it from general taxes on the local and state levels? What about a special education tax for those industries with special needs for technically trained workers? American schoolchildren don't do enough schoolwork. There are 180 days in the standard school year in the United States, as compared with 220 in South Korea, about 230 in Germany, and 243 in Japan. Children. In some of these countries, go to school on Saturday. The average American high school student spends 3.5 hours a week on homework. The total time devoted to studies, in and out of the classroom, is about 20 hours a week. Japanese fifth graders average 33 hours a week. Japan, with half the population of the United States, produces twice as many scientists and engineers. With advanced degrees every year. During four years of high school, American students spend less than 1,500 hours on such subjects as mathematics, science, and history. Japanese, French, and German students spend more than twice as much time. A 1994 report commissioned by the U.S. Department of Education notes: the traditional school day must now fit in a whole set of requirements. For what has been called the new work of the schools, education about personal safety, consumer affairs, AIDS, conservation and energy, family life, and drivers' training. So, because of the deficiencies of the society, and the inadequacies of education in the home, only about three hours a day are spent in high school on the core academic subjects. There's a widely held perception that science is too hard for ordinary people. We can see this reflected in the statistic that only around 10% of American high school students ever opt for a course in physics. What makes science suddenly too hard? Why isn't it too hard for the citizens of all those other countries that are outperforming the United States? What has happened to the American genius for science? Technical innovation and hard work. Americans once took enormous pride in their inventors, who pioneered the telegraph, telephone, electric light, phonograph, automobile, and aeroplane. Except for computers, all that seems a thing of the past. Where did all that Yankee ingenuity go? Most American children aren't stupid. Part of the reason they don't study hard. Is that they receive few tangible benefits when they do. Competency, that is, actually knowing the stuff in verbal skills, mathematics, science, and history, these days, doesn't increase earnings for average young men in their first eight years out of high school, many of whom take service rather than industrial jobs. In the productive sectors of the economy, though, the story is often different. There are furniture factories, for example, in danger of going out of business, not because there are no customers, 
but because so few entry-level workers can do simple arithmetic. A major electronics company reports that 80% of its job applicants can't pass a fifth-grade mathematics test. The United States is already losing some $40 billion a year, mainly in lost productivity and the cost of remedial education, because workers, to too great a degree, can't read, write, count, or think. In a survey by the U.S. National Science Board of the 139 high-technology companies in the United States, the chief causes of the research and development decline attributable to national policy were 1. Lack of a long-term strategy for dealing with the problem. 2. Too little attention paid to the training of future scientists and engineers. 3. Too much investment in defense and not enough in civilian research and development. And 4. Too little attention paid to pre-college education. Ignorance feeds on ignorance. Science phobia is contagious. Those in America with the most favorable view of science tend to be young, well-to-do, college-educated white males. But three-quarters of new American workers in the next decade will be women, non-whites, and immigrants. Failing to rouse their enthusiasm, to say nothing of discriminating against them, isn't only unjust, it's also stupid and self-defeating. It deprives the economy of desperately needed skilled workers. African-American and Hispanic students are doing significantly better in standardized science tests now than in the late 1960s, but they're the only ones who are. The average math gap between white and black U.S. high school graduates is still huge, two to three grade levels, but the gap between white U.S. high school graduates and those, say, in Japan, Canada, Great Britain, or Finland is more than twice as large, with the U.S. students behind. If you're poorly motivated and poorly educated, you won't know much. No mystery there. Suburban African Americans with college-educated parents do just as well in college as suburban whites with college-educated parents. According to some statistics, enrolling a poor child in a Head Start program doubles his or her chances to be employed later in life. One who completes an upward-bound program is four times as likely to get a college education. If we're serious, we know what to do. What about college and university? There are obvious steps to take. Improved status based on teaching success and promotions of teachers based on the performance of their students in standardized, double-blind tests. Salaries for teachers that approach what they could get in industry. More scholarships, fellowships, and laboratory equipment. Imaginative, inspiring curricula and textbooks in which the leading faculty members play a major role. Laboratory courses required of everyone to graduate. And special attention paid to those traditionally steered away from science. We should also encourage the best academic scientists to spend more time on public education. Textbooks, lectures, newspaper and magazine articles, TV appearances.
and a mandatory freshman or sophomore course in skeptical thinking and the methods of science might be worth trying. The mystic William Blake stared at the sun and saw angels there, while others, more worldly, perceived only an object about the size and color of a golden guinea. Did Blake really see angels on the sun, or was it some perceptual or cognitive error? I know of no photograph of the sun that shows anything of the sort. Did Blake see what the camera and the telescope cannot? Or does the explanation lie much more inside Blake's head than outside? And is not the truth of the sun's nature, as revealed by modern science, far more wonderful? No mere angels or gold coin, but an enormous sphere into which a million earths could be packed, in the core of which the hidden nuclei of atoms are being jammed together, hydrogen transfigured into helium, the energy latent in hydrogen for billions of years released, the earth and other planets warmed and lit thereby, and the same process repeated 400 billion times elsewhere in the Milky Way galaxy. The blueprints, detailed instructions, and job orders for building you from scratch would fill about 1,000 encyclopedia volumes if written out in English. Yet every cell in your body has a set of these encyclopedias. A quasar is so far away that the light we see from it began its intergalactic voyage before the Earth was formed. Every person on Earth is descended from the same not-quite-human ancestors in East Africa a few million years ago, making us all cousins. Whenever I think about any of these discoveries, I feel a tingle of exhilaration. My heart races. I can't help it. Science is an astonishment and a delight. Every time a spacecraft flies by a new world, I find myself amazed. Planetary scientists ask themselves, Oh, is that the way it is? Why didn't we think of that? But nature is always more subtle, more intricate, more elegant than what we are able to imagine. Given our manifest human limitations, what is surprising is that we have been able to penetrate so far into the secrets of nature. Nearly every scientist has experienced, in a moment of discovery or sudden understanding, a reverential astonishment. Science, pure science, science not for any practical application but for its own sake, is a deeply emotional matter for those who practice it, as well as for those non-scientists who, every now and then, dip in to see what's been discovered lately. And, as in a detective story, it's a joy to frame key questions, to work through alternative explanations, and maybe even to advance the process of scientific discovery. Consider these examples, some very simple, some not, chosen more or less at random. Could there be an undiscovered integer between six and seven? Could there be an undiscovered chemical element between atomic number six, which is carbon, and atomic number seven, which is nitrogen? Yes, the new preservative causes cancer in rats. But what if you have to give a person, who weighs much more than a rat, 
a pound a day of the stuff to induce cancer. In that case, maybe the new preservative isn't all that dangerous. Might the benefit of having food preserved for long periods outweigh the small additional risk of cancer? Who decides? What data do they need to make a prudent decision? In a 3.8 billion-year-old rock, you find a ratio of carbon isotopes typical of living things today, and different from inorganic sediments. Do you deduce abundant life on Earth 3.8 billion years ago? Or could the chemical remains of more modern organisms have infiltrated into the rock? Or is there a way for isotopes to separate in the rock apart from biological processes? Sensitive measurements of electrical currents in the human brain show that when certain memories or mental processes occur, particular regions of the brain go into action. Can our thoughts, memories, and passions all be generated by particular circuitry of the brain neurons? Might it ever be possible to simulate such circuitry in a robot? Would it ever be feasible to insert new circuits or alter old ones in the brain in such a way as to change opinions, memories, emotions, logical deductions? Is such tampering wildly dangerous? Your theory of the origin of the solar system predicts many flat disks of gas and dust all over the Milky Way galaxy. You look through the telescope and you find flat disks everywhere. You happily conclude that your theory is confirmed. But it turns out that the disks you cited were spiral galaxies far beyond the Milky Way and much too big to be nascent solar systems. Should you abandon your theory? Or should you look for a different kind of disk? Or is this just an expression of your unwillingness to abandon a discredited hypothesis? A growing cancer sends out an all-points bulletin to the cells lining adjacent blood vessels. We need blood, the message says. The endothelial cells obligingly build blood vessel bridges to supply cancer cells with blood. How does this come about? Can the message be intercepted or cancelled? You mix violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red paints, and you make a murky brown. Then you mix light of the same colors, and you get white. What's going on? In the genes of humans and many other animals, there are long, repetitive sequences of hereditary information, called nonsense. Some of these sequences cause genetic diseases. Could it be that segments of the DNA are rogue nucleic acids, reproducing on their own, in business for themselves, disdaining the well-being of the organism they inhabit? Many animals behave strangely just before an earthquake. What do they know that seismologists don't? The ancient Aztec and the ancient Greek words for God are nearly the same. Is this evidence of some contact or commonality between the two civilizations? Or should we expect occasional such coincidences between two wholly unrelated languages merely by chance? Or could, as Plato thought in the Cratylus, certain words be built into us from birth? The second law of thermodynamics states that in the universe as a whole, disorder increases 
as time goes on. Of course, locally worlds and life and intelligence can emerge, at the cost of a decrease in order elsewhere in the universe. But if we live in a universe in which the present Big Bang expansion will slow, stop, and be replaced by a contraction, might the second law then be reversed? Can effects precede causes? The human body uses concentrated hydrochloric acid in the stomach to dissolve food and aid digestion. Why doesn't the hydrochloric acid dissolve the stomach? The oldest stars seem to be, at the time I'm writing, older than the universe. Like the claim that an acquaintance has children older than she is, you don't have to know very much to recognize that someone has made a mistake. Who? The technology now exists to move individual atoms around, so long and complex messages can be written on an ultra-microscopic scale. It is also possible to make machines the size of molecules. Rudimentary examples of both of these nanotechnologies are now well demonstrated. Where does this take us in another few decades? In several different laboratories, complex molecules have been found that under suitable conditions make copies of themselves in the test tube. Some of these molecules are, like DNA and RNA, built out of nucleotides. Others are not. Some use enzymes to hasten the pace of the chemistry. Others do not. Sometimes there is a mistake in copying. From that point forward, the mistake is copied in successive generations of molecules. Thus, there get to be slightly different species of self-replicating molecules, some of which reproduce faster or more efficiently than others. These preferentially thrive. As time goes on, the molecules in the test tube become more and more efficient. We are beginning to witness the evolution of molecules. How much insight does this provide about the origin of life? Why is ordinary ice white, but pure glacial ice blue? Life has been found miles below the surface of the Earth. How deep does it go? The Dogon people in the Republic of Mali are said by a French anthropologist to have a legend that the star Sirius has an extremely dense companion star. Sirius, in fact, does have such a companion, although it requires fairly sophisticated astronomy to detect it. So, one, did the Dogon people descend from a forgotten civilization that had large optical telescopes and theoretical astrophysics? Or two, were they instructed by extraterrestrials? Or three, did the Dogon people hear about the white dwarf companion of Sirius from a visiting European? Or four, was the French anthropologist mistaken, and the Dogon, in fact, never had such a legend? Why should it be hard for scientists to get science across? Some scientists, including some very good ones, tell me they'd love to popularize, but feel they lack talent in this area. Knowing and explaining, they say, are not the same thing. 
What's the secret? There's only one, I think. Don't talk to the general audience as you would to your scientific colleagues. There are terms that convey your meaning instantly and accurately to fellow experts. You may pass these phrases every day in your professional work, but they do no more than mystify an audience of non-specialists. Use the simplest possible language. Above all, remember how it was before you yourself grasped whatever it is you're explaining. Remember the misunderstandings that you almost fell into, and note them explicitly. Keep firmly in mind that there was a time when you didn't understand any of this either. Recapitulate the first steps that led you from ignorance to knowledge. Never forget that native intelligence is widely distributed in our species. Indeed, it's the secret of our success. The effort involved is slight. The benefits, great. Among the potential pitfalls are oversimplification, the need to be sparing with qualifications and quantifications, inadequate credit given to the many scientists involved, and insufficient distinctions drawn between helpful analogy and reality. Doubtless, compromises must be made. The more you make such presentations, the clearer it is which approaches work and which do not. There is a natural selection of metaphors, images, analogies, anecdotes. After a while, you find that you can get almost anywhere you want to go, walking on consumer-tested stepping stones. You can then fine-tune your presentations for the needs of a given audience. Like some editors and television producers, some scientists believe the public is too ignorant or too stupid to understand science, that the enterprise of popularization is fundamentally a lost cause, or even that it's tantamount to fraternization, if not outright cohabitation with the enemy. Among the many criticisms that could be made of this judgment, along with its insufferable arrogance and its neglect of a host of examples of highly successful science popularizations, is that it is self-confirming, and also, for the scientists involved, self-defeating. Large-scale government support for science is fairly new, dating back only to World War II, although patronage of a few scientists by the rich and powerful is much older. With the end of the Cold War, the National Defense Trump card that provided support for all sorts of fundamental science became virtually unplayable. Only partly for this reason, most scientists, I think, are now comfortable with the idea of popularizing science. Since nearly all support for science comes from the public coffers, it would be an odd flirtation with suicide for scientists to oppose competent popularization. What the public understands and appreciates, it is more likely to support. I don't mean writing articles for Scientific American, say, that are read by science enthusiasts and scientists in other fields. I'm not just talking about teaching introductory courses for undergraduates. I'm talking about efforts to communicate the substance and approach of science in newspapers, magazines, on radio and television, in lectures for the general public and in elementary, middle, 
and high school textbooks. Of course, there are judgment calls to be made in popularizing. It's important neither to mystify nor to patronize. In attempting to prod public interest, scientists have on occasion gone too far. For example, in drawing unjustified religious conclusions. Astronomer George Smoot described his discovery of small irregularities in the radio radiation left over from the Big Bang as seeing God face to face. Physics Nobel laureate Leon Liederman described the Higgs boson, a hypothetical building block of matter, as the God particle, and so titled a book. In my opinion, they're all God particles. If the Higgs boson doesn't exist, is the God hypothesis disproved? Physicist Frank Tipler proposes that computers in the remote future will prove the existence of God and work our bodily resurrection. Periodicals and television can strike sparks as they give us a glimpse of science, and this is very important. But apart from apprenticeship or well-structured classes and seminars, the best way to popularize science is through textbooks, popular books, CD-ROMs, and laser discs. You can mull things over, go at your own pace, revisit the hard parts, compare texts, dig deep. It has to be done right, though, and in the schools especially, it generally isn't. There, as the philosopher John Passmore comments, Science is often presented as a matter of learning principles and applying them by routine procedures. It is learned from textbooks, not by reading the works of great scientists or even the day-to-day -day contributions to the scientific literature. The beginning scientist, unlike the beginning humanist, does not have an immediate contact with genius. Indeed, school courses can attract quite the wrong sort of person into science, unimaginative boys and girls who like routine. I hold that popularization of science is successful if, at first, it does no more than spark the sense of wonder. To do that, it is sufficient to provide a glimpse of the findings of science without thoroughly explaining how those findings were achieved. It's easier to portray the destination than the journey. But where possible, popularizers should try to chronicle some of the mistakes, false starts, dead ends, and apparently hopeless confusion along the way. At least every now and then, we should provide the evidence and let the reader draw his or her own conclusion. This converts obedient assimilation of new knowledge into personal discovery. When you make the finding yourself, even if you're the last person on earth to see the light, you never forget it. As a youngster, I was inspired by the popular science books and articles of George Gamow, James Jeans, Arthur Eddington, J.B.S. Haldane, Julian Huxley, Rachel Carson, and Arthur C. Clarke, all of them trained in, and most of them, leading practitioners of science. The popularity of well-written, well-explained, deeply imaginative books on science that touch our hearts, as well as our minds, seems greater in the last twenty years than ever before, and the number, 
and disciplinary diversity of scientists writing these books is likewise unprecedented. Among the best contemporary scientist popularizers, I think of Stephen Jay Gould, E. O. Wilson, Lewis Thomas, and Richard Dawkins in biology, Stephen Weinberg, Alan Lightman, and Kip Thorne in physics, Roald Hoffman in chemistry, and the early works of Fred Hoyle in astronomy. Isaac Asimov wrote capably on everything, and while requiring calculus, the most consistently exciting, provocative, and inspiring science popularization of the last few decades, seems to me to be Volume 1 of Richard Feynman's Introductory Lectures on Physics. Nevertheless, current efforts are clearly nowhere near commensurate with the public good. And, of course, if we can't read, we can't benefit from such works, no matter how inspiring they are. I want us to rescue Mr. Buckley and the millions like him. I also want us to stop turning out leaden, incurious, uncritical, and unimaginative high school seniors. Our species needs and deserves a citizenry with minds wide awake and a basic understanding of how the world works. Science, I maintain, is an absolutely essential tool for any society with a hope of surviving well into the next century, with its fundamental values intact. Not just science as engaged in by its practitioners, but science understood and embraced by the entire human community. And if the scientists will not bring this about, who will? Chapter 20 House on Fire Written with Andrian The Lord Buddha replied to the Venerable Sariputra, In some village, city, market town, country district, province, kingdom, or capital, there lived a householder, old, advanced in years, decrepit, weak in health and strength, but rich, wealthy, and well-to-do. His house was a large one, both extensive and high, and it was old, having been built a long time ago. It was inhabited by many living beings, some two, three, four, or five hundred. It had one single door only. It was thatched with straw. Its terraces had fallen down. Its foundations were rotten. Its walls, matting screens, and plaster were in an advanced state of decay. Suddenly, a great blaze of fire broke out, and the house started burning on all sides. And that man had many young sons, five or ten or twenty, and he himself got out of the house. When that man saw his own house ablaze all around, with that great mass of fire, he became afraid and trembled. His mind became agitated, and he thought to himself, I, it is true, have been competent enough to run out of the door and to escape from my burning house, quickly and safely, without being touched or scorched by that great mass of fire. But what about my sons, my young boys, my little sons? There, in this burning house, they play, sport, amuse themselves with all sorts of games. They do not know 
that this dwelling is a fire. They do not understand it, do not perceive it, pay no attention to it, and so they feel no agitation. Though threatened by this great fire, though in such close contact with so much ill, they pay no attention to their danger and make no efforts to get out. From the Sadharma Pandarika in Buddhist Scriptures One of the reasons it's so interesting to write for Parade Magazine is feedback. With 80 million readers, you can really sample the opinion of the citizens of the United States. You can understand how people think, what their anxieties and hopes are, and even perhaps where we have lost our way. An abbreviated version of the preceding chapter, emphasizing the performance of students and teachers, was published in Parade. I was flooded with mail. Some people denied there was a problem. Others said that Americans were losing cutting-edge intelligence and know-how. Some thought there were easy solutions. Others, that the problems were too deeply ingrained to fix. Many opinions were a surprise to me. A tenth-grade teacher in Minnesota handed out copies of the article and asked his students to tell me what they thought. Here's what some American high school students wrote, spelling, grammar, and punctuation as in the original letters. Not a Americans are stupid, we just rank lower in school, big deal. Maybe that's good that we are not as smart as other countries. So then we can just import all of our products, and then we don't have to spend all of our money on the parts for the goods. And if the other countries are doing better, what does it matter? They're most likely going to come over to the U.S. anyway. Our society is doing just fine with what discoveries we are making. It's going slowly, but the cure for cancer is coming right along. The U.S. has its own learning system, and it may not be advanced as theirs, but it's just as good. Otherwise, I think your article is a very educating one. Not one kid in this school likes science. I really didn't understand the point of the article. I thought it was very boring. I'm not into anything like that. I'm studying to be a lawyer, and frankly, I do agree with my parents when they say I have an attitude problem towards science. It's true that some American kids don't try, but we could be smarter than any other country if we wanted to. Instead of homework, kids will watch TV. I have to agree that I do it. I have cut it down from about four hours a day. I don't believe it is the school system's fault. I think the whole country is brought up with not enough emphasis on school. I know my mum would rather be watching me play basketball or soccer instead of helping me with an assignment. Most of the kids I know could care less about making sure they're doing their work right. I don't think American kids are stupid. I just think they don't study hard enough because most kids work. Lots of people said that Asian people are smarter than American and they are good at everything. But that's not true. They're not good at sports. They don't have time to play sports. I'm in sports myself and I feel that the other kids on my team 
push you to excel more in that sport than in school. If we want to rank first, we could go to school all day and not have any social life. I can see why a lot of science teachers would get mad at you for insulting their job. Maybe, if the teachers could be more exciting, the children will want to learn. If science is made to be fun, kids will want to learn. To accomplish this, it needs to be started early on, not just taught as facts and figures. I really find it hard to believe those facts about the U.S. and science. If we're so far behind, how come Michael Gorbachev came to Minnesota and Montana to control data, to see how we run our computers and thing? Around 33 hours for fifth graders? In my opinion, that's too much. That's almost as many hours as a full job, practically. So instead of homework, we can be making money. When you put down how far behind we are in science and math, why don't you try to tell us this in a little nicer manner? Have a little pride in your country and its capabilities. I think your facts were inconclusive and the evidence very flimsy. All in all, you raised a good point. All in all, these students don't think there's much of a problem. And if there is, not much can be done about it. Many also complained that the lectures, classroom discussions, and homework were boring, especially for an MTV generation beset by attention deficit disorders in various degrees of severity, it is boring. But spending three or four grades practicing once again the addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division of fractions would bore anyone. And the tragedy is that, say, elementary probability theory is within reach of these students. Likewise, for the forms of plants and animals presented without evolution, history presented as wars, dates, and kings without the role of obedience to authority, greed, incompetence, and ignorance, English without new words entering the language and old words disappearing, and chemistry without where the elements came from. The means of awakening these students are at hand and ignored. Since most school children emerge with only a tiny fraction of what they've been taught permanently engraved in their long-term memories, isn't it essential to infect them with consumer-tested topics that aren't boring, and a zest for learning? Most adults who wrote thought there's a substantial problem. I received letters from parents about inquisitive children willing to work hard, passionate about science, but with no adequate community or school resources to satisfy their interests. Other letters told of parents who knew nothing about science sacrificing their own comfort so their children could have science books, microscopes, telescopes, computers, or chemistry sets, of parents teaching their children that hard work will get them out of poverty, of a grandmother bringing tea to a student up late at night still doing homework, of peer pressure not to do well in school because it makes the other kids look bad. Here's a sampling, not an opinion poll, but representative commentary, of other responses by parents. Do parents understand that you can't be a full human being if you're ignorant? Are there books at home? 
How about a magnifying glass, encyclopedia? Do they encourage children to learn? Parents have to teach patience and perseverance. The most important gift they can give their children is the ethos of hard work. But they can't just talk about it. The kids who learn to work hard are the ones who see their parents work hard and never give up. My child is fascinated by science, but she doesn't get any in school or on TV. My child is identified as gifted, but the school has no program for science enrichment. The guidance counselor told me to send her to a private school, but we can't afford a private school. There's enormous peer pressure. Shy children don't want to stand out by doing well in science. When my daughter reached 13 and 14, her lifelong interest in science seemed to disappear. Parents also had much to say about teachers, and some of the comments by teachers echoed the parents. For example, people complained that teachers are trained how to teach, but not what to teach that a large number of physics and chemistry teachers have no degree in physics or chemistry and are uncomfortable and incompetent in teaching science, that teachers themselves have too much science and math anxiety, that they resist being asked questions, or they answer, it's in the book, look it up. Some complained that the biology teacher was a creationist. Some complained that he wasn't. Among other comments by or about teachers, we are breeding a collection of halfwits. It's easier to memorize than to think. Kids have to be taught to think. The teachers and curricula are dumbing down to the lowest common denominator. Why is the basketball coach teaching chemistry? Teachers are required to spend much too much time on discipline and on social curricula. There's no incentive to use our own judgment. The brass are always looking over our shoulders. Abandon tenure in schools and colleges. Get rid of the deadwood. Leave hiring and firing to principals, deans, and superintendents. My joy in teaching was repeatedly thwarted by militaristic-type principals. Teachers should be rewarded on the basis of performance, especially student performance on standardized nationwide tests and improvements in student performance on such tests from one year to the next. Teachers are stifling our children's minds by telling them they're not smart enough, for example, for a career in physics. Why not give the students a chance to take the course? My son was promoted even though he's reading two grade levels behind the rest of his class. The reason given was social, not educational. He'll never catch up unless he's left back. Science should be required in all school, and especially high school, curricula. It should be carefully coordinated with the math courses the students are taking at the same time. Most homework is busy work, rather than something that makes you think. I think Diane Ravitch, New Republic, March 6, 1989, tells it like it is. As a female student 
at Hunter High School in New York City recently explained, I make straight A's, but I never talk about it. It's cool to do really badly. If you're interested in school and you show it, you're a nerd. The popular culture, through television, movies, magazines, and videos, incessantly drums in the message to young women that it is better to be popular, sexy, and cool than to be intelligent, accomplished, and outspoken. In 1986, researchers found a similar anti-academic ethos among both high school and female students in Washington, D.C. They noted that able students faced strong peer pressure not to succeed in school. If they did well in their studies, they might be accused of acting white. Schools could easily give much more recognition and rewards to kids who are outstanding in science and math. Why don't they? Why not special jackets with school letters, announcements in assembly, and the school newspaper and the local press, local industry and social organizations to give special awards? This costs very little and could overcome peer pressure not to excel. Head Start is the single most effective program for improving children's understanding of science and everything else. There were also many passionate, highly controversial opinions expressed, which, at the very least, give a sense of how deeply people feel about the subject. Here's a smattering. All the smart kids are looking for the fast buck these days, so they become lawyers, not scientists. I don't want you to improve education. Then there'd be nobody to drive the cabs. The problem in science education is that God isn't sufficiently honored. The fundamentalist teaching that science is humanism and is to be mistrusted is the reason nobody understands science. Religions are afraid of the skeptical thinking at the heart of science. Students are brainwashed not to accept scientific thinking long before they get to college. Science has discredited itself. It works for politicians. It makes weapons. It lies about marijuana hazards. It ignores about the dangers of Agent Orange, etc. The public schools don't work. Abandon them. Let's have private schools only. We have let the advocates of permissiveness, fuzzy thinking, and rampant socialism destroy what was once a great educational system. The school system has enough money. The problem is that the white males, usually coaches, who run the schools, would never, and I mean never, hire an intellectual. They care more about the football team than the curriculum, and hire only sub-mediocre, flag-waving, God-loving robots to teach. What kind of students can emerge from schools that oppress, punish, and neglect logical thinking? Release schools from the stranglehold of the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, NEA, National Education Association, and others engaged in the breakdown of the discipline and competence in the schools. I'm afraid you have no understanding of the country in which you live. The people are incredibly ignorant and fearful, 
They will not tolerate listening to any new idea. Don't you get it? The system survives only because it has an ignorant, God-fearing population. There's a reason lots of educated people are unemployed. I'm sometimes required to explain technological issues to congressional staffers. Believe me, there's a problem in science education in this country. There is no single solution to the problem of illiteracy in science, or math, history, English, geography, and many of the other skills which our society needs more of. The responsibilities are broadly shared. Parents, the voting public, local school boards, the media, teachers, administrators, federal, state, and local governments, plus, of course, the students themselves. At every level, teachers complain that the problem lies in earlier grades. And first-grade teachers can, with justice, despair of teaching children with learning deficits because of malnutrition or no books in the home or a culture of violence in which the leisure to think is unavailable. I know very well from my own experience how much a child can benefit from parents who have a little learning and are able to pass it on. Even small improvements in the education, communication skills, and passion for learning in one generation might work much larger improvements in the next. I think of this every time I hear a complaint that school and collegiate standards are falling, or that a bachelor's degree doesn't mean what it once did. Dorothy Rich, an innovative teacher from Yonkers, New York, believes that far more important than specific academic subjects is the honing of key skills which she lists as confidence, perseverance, caring, teamwork, common sense, and problem-solving, to which I'd add skeptical thinking and an aptitude for wonder. At the same time, children with special abilities and skills need to be nourished and encouraged. They are a national treasure. Challenging programs for the gifted are sometimes decried as elitism. Why aren't intensive practice sessions for varsity football, baseball, and basketball players, and inter-school competition deemed elitism? After all, only the most gifted athletes participate. There is a self-defeating double standard at work here, nationwide. The problems in public education in science and other subjects run so deep that it's easy to despair and conclude that they can never be fixed. And yet there are institutions hidden away in big cities and small towns that provide reason for hope, places that strike the spark, awaken slumbering curiosities, and ignite the scientist that lives in all of us. The enormous metallic iron meteorite in front of you is as full of holes as a Swiss cheese. Gingerly, you reach out to touch it. It feels smooth and cold. The thought occurs to you that this is a piece of another world. How did it get to Earth? What happened in space to make it so beat up? 
the display shows maps of 18th century London and the spread of a horrifying cholera epidemic. People in one house got it from people in neighboring houses. By running the wave of infection back, you can see where it started. It's like being a detective. And when you pinpoint the origin, you find it's a place with open sewers. It occurs to you that there's a life-and-death reason why modern cities have adequate sanitation. You think of all those cities and towns and villages in the world that don't. You get to thinking maybe there's a simpler, cheaper way to do it. You're crawling through a long, utterly black tunnel. There are sudden turns, ups and downs. You go through a forest of feathery things, beady things, big, solid, round things. You imagine what it must be like to be blind. You think about how little we rely on our sense of touch. In the dark and the quiet, you're alone with your thoughts. Somehow, the experience is exhilarating. You examine a detailed reconstruction of a procession of priests climbing up one of the great ziggurats of Sumer, or a gorgeously painted tomb in the Valley of the Kings in ancient Egypt or a house in ancient Rome, or a full-scale turn-of-the-century street in small-town America. You think of all those civilizations, so different from yours, how, if you'd been born into them, you'd have thought them completely natural, how you'd consider our society, if you had somehow been told of it, as weird. You squeeze the eyedropper, and a drop of pond water drips out onto the microscope stage. You look at the projected image. The drop is full of life. Strange beings swimming, crawling, tumbling, high dramas of pursuit and escape, triumph and tragedy. This is a world populated by beings far more exotic than in any science fiction movie. Seated in the theater, you find yourself inside the head of an eleven-year-old boy. You look out through his eyes, you encounter his typical daily crises, bullies, authoritarian adults, crushes on girls. You hear the voice inside his head. You witness his neurological and hormonal responses to his social environment. And you get to wonder how you work on the inside. Following the simple instructions, you type in the commands. What will the earth look like? if we continue to burn coal, oil, and gas, and double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? How much hotter will it be? How much polar ice will melt? How much higher will the oceans be? Why are we pouring so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? What if we put five times more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? Also, how could anybody know what the future climate will be like? It gets you thinking. In my childhood, I was taken to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. I was transfixed by the dioramas, lifelike representations of animals and their habitats all over the world. Penguins on the dimly lit Antarctic ice. Okapi in the bright African veldt. A family of gorillas, the male beating his chest in a shaded forest glade. An American grizzly bear 
standing on his hind legs, ten or twelve feet tall, and staring me right in the eye. These were three-dimensional freeze frames captured by some genie of the lamp. Did the grizzly move just then? Did the gorilla blink? Might the genie return, lift the spell, and permit this gorgeous array of living things to go on with their lives, as, jaws agape, I watch? Kids have an irresistible urge to touch. Back in those days, the most commonly heard two words in museums were don't touch. Decades ago, there was almost nothing hands-on in museums of science or natural history, not even a simulated tidal pool in which you could pick up a crab and inspect it. The closest thing to an interactive exhibit that I knew was the scales in the Hayden Planetarium, one for each planet. Weighing a mere forty pounds on Earth, there was something reassuring in the thought that if only you lived on Jupiter, you would weigh a hundred pounds. But sadly, on the moon, you would weigh only seven pounds. On the moon, it seemed, you would hardly be there at all. Today, children are encouraged to touch, to poke, to run through a branched contingency tree of questions and answers via computer, or to make funny noises and see what the sound waves look like. Even kids who don't get everything out of the exhibit, or who don't even get the point of the exhibit, usually extract something valuable. You go to these museums and you're struck by the wide-eyed looks of wonder, by kids racing from exhibit to exhibit, by the triumphant smiles of discovery. They're wildly popular. Almost as many of us go to them each year as attend professional baseball, basketball, and football games combined. These exhibits do not replace instruction in school or at home, but they awaken and excite. A great science museum inspires a child to read a book, or to take a course, or to return to the museum again to engage in a process of discovery, and most important, to learn the method of scientific thinking. Another glorious feature of many modern science museums is a movie theater showing IMAX or Omnimax films. In some cases, the screen is ten stories tall and wraps around you. The Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, the most popular museum on Earth, has premiered in its Langley Theater some of the best of these films. To Fly brings a catch to my throat even after five or six viewings. I've seen religious leaders of many denominations witness Blue Planet and be converted on the spot to the need to protect the Earth's environment. Not every exhibit and science museum is exemplary. A few still are commercials for firms that have contributed money to promote their products. How an automobile engine works, or the cleanliness of one fossil fuel as compared to another. Too many museums that claim to be about science are really about technology and medicine. Too many biology exhibits are still afraid to mention the key idea of modern biology, evolution. Beings develop or emerge, but never evolve. The absence of humans from the deep fossil record is underplayed. We are shown nothing 
of the anatomical and DNA near-identity between humans and chimps or gorillas. Nothing is displayed on complex organic molecules in space and on other worlds, nor about experiments showing the stuff of life forming in enormous numbers in the known atmospheres of other worlds and the presumptive atmosphere of the early Earth. A notable exception. The Natural History Museum of the Smithsonian Institution once had an unforgettable exhibit on evolution. It began with two roaches in a modern kitchen, with open cereal boxes and other food. Left alone for a few weeks, the place was crowded with roaches, buckets of them everywhere, competing for the little food now available, and the long-term hereditary advantage that a slightly better-adapted roach might have over its competitors became crystal clear. Also, too, many planetaria are still devoted to picking out constellations rather than traveling to other worlds and depicting the evolution of galaxies, stars, and planets. They also have an insect-like projector, always visible, which robs the sky of its reality. Perhaps the grandest museum exhibit can't be seen. It has no home. George Awad is one of the leading architectural model makers in America, specializing in skyscrapers. He's also a dedicated student of astronomy, who has made a spectacular model of the universe, starting with a prosaic scene on Earth and following a scheme proposed by the designers Charles and Ray Eames. He goes progressively by factors of ten to show us the whole Earth, the solar system, the Milky Way, and the universe. Every astronomical body is meticulously detailed. You can lose yourself in them. It's one of the best tools I know of to explain the scale and nature of the universe to children. Isaac Asimov described it as the most imaginative representation of the universe that I have ever seen or could have conceived of. I could have wandered through it for hours, seeing something new at every turn that I hadn't observed before. Versions of it ought to be available throughout the country, for stirring the imagination, for inspiration, and for teaching. But instead, Mr. Awad cannot give this exhibit to any major science museum in the country. No one is willing to devote to it the floor space needed. As I write, it still sits forlornly, crated in storage. The population of my town, Ithaca, New York, doubles to a grand total of about 50,000 when Cornell University and Ithaca College are in session. Ethically diverse, surrounded by farmland, it has suffered, like so much of the Northeast, the decline of its 19th century manufacturing base. Half the children at Beverly J. Martin Elementary School, which our daughter attended, live below the poverty line. Those are the kids that two volunteer science teachers, Debbie Levin and Ilma Levine, worried about most. It didn't seem right that for some, the children of Cornell faculty say, even the sky wasn't the limit. For others, there was no access to the liberating power of science education. Starting in the 1960s, they made regular trips to the school, 
dragging their portable library cart, laden with household chemicals and other familiar items to convey something of the magic of science. They dreamt of creating a place for kids to go, where they could get a personal, hands-on feel for science. In 1983, Levin and Levine placed a small ad in our local paper, inviting the community to discuss the idea. Fifty people showed up. From that group came the first board of directors of the Science Center. Within a year, they secured exhibition space in the first floor of an unrented office building. When the owner found a paying tenant, the tadpoles and litmus paper were packed up again and carted off to a vacant storefront. Moves to other storefronts followed until an Ithacan named Bob Leathers, an architect world-renowned for designing innovative, community-built playgrounds, drew up and donated the plans for a permanent science center. Gifts from local firms provided enough money to purchase an abandoned lot from the city and then hire an executive director, Charles Troutman, a Cornell civil engineer. He and Leathers traveled to the annual meeting of the National Association of Home Builders in Atlanta. Troutman relates how they told the story of a community eager to take responsibility for the education of its youth and secured donations of many key items such as windows, skylights, and lumber. Before they could start building, some of the old pump house on the site had to be torn down. Members of a Cornell fraternity were enlisted. With hard hats and sledgehammers, they demolished the place joyfully. This is the kind of thing, they said, we usually get into trouble for doing. In two days, they carted away 200 tons of rubble. What followed were images straight out of an America that many of us fear has vanished. In the tradition of pioneer barn-raising, Members of the community, bricklayers, doctors, carpenters, university professors, plumbers, farmers, the very young and the very old, all rolled up their sleeves to build the science center. The continuous seven-days-a-week schedule was maintained, said Troutman, so that anyone would be able to help any time. Everyone was given a job. Experienced volunteers built stairs, laid carpet and tile, and trimmed windows. Others painted, nailed, and carried supplies. Some 2,200 townspeople donated more than 40,000 hours. Roughly 10% of the construction work was performed by people convicted of minor offenses. They preferred to do something for the community than to sit idle in jail. Ten months later, Ithaca had the only community-built science museum in the world. Among the 75 interactive exhibits emphasizing both the processes and principles of science are the Magicam, a microscope that visitors can use to view on a color monitor and then photograph any object at 40 times magnification. The world's only public connection to the satellite-based National Lightning Detection Network a six-by-nine-foot walk-in camera, a fossil pit seeded with local shale where visitors hunt for fossils from 380 million years ago and keep their finds.
an eight-foot-long boa constrictor named Spot, and a dazzling array of other experiments, computers, and activities. Levin and Levine can still be found there, full-time volunteers teaching the citizens and scientists of the future. The DeWitt Wallace Reader's Digest Fund supports and extends their dreams of reaching kids who would ordinarily be denied their scientific birthright. Through the fund's nationwide Youth Alive program, Ithaca teenagers receive intensive mentoring to develop their science, conflict resolution, and employment skills. Levin and Levine thought science should belong to everyone. Their community agreed and made a commitment to realize that dream. In the Science Center's first year, 55,000 people came from all 50 states and 60 countries. Not bad for a small town. It makes you wonder what else we could do if we worked together for a better future for our kids.